0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Biblical Marginalia. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, January 31st, 2016. When I was in college 40 years ago, I started the practice of reading through the entire Bible at least once a year. Since the Old Testament was so long, sometimes boring, time-consuming, and in my view back then, something like a prologue to the real story, sometimes I would also read just the New Testament a couple more times. In later years, I abbreviated my practice by reading only the New Testament, or just the Psalms and the Gospels. On a weekend retreat, for example, reading through the New Testament, my version is 571 pages, isn't much longer than reading a novel. Eventually, this annual practice fell by the wayside, but not before I became so familiar with the Bible that today I sometimes find it hard to read with truly fresh eyes. Like lots of people do when they read the Bible, I would underline passages and jot little notes in the margins. Red, yellow, black, blue, and even fluorescent green. The colored highlighters now recall different annual readings. Forty years after the fact, some of these scribbles are embarrassingly adolescent. But maybe that's the way it should be. It's a sign of growing up. Other marginalia recall important life passages. So, it was with a feeling of deja vu this week that I read the lectionary from Jeremiah 1 4 to 10, and noticed in my Bible an old marginalia that I had written in pencil. It said, New Baby Number 3, 1190. At the time, back in 1990, we had just learned that my wife was pregnant with our third child. My note was a response to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. This is awfully powerful ancient poetry. It expresses a sentiment that's repeated elsewhere in the Bible, that every life is a sacred gift from God. The psalmist for this week, for example, declares, You brought me forth from my mother's womb. Or again, Isaiah 49, chapter 1. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth he has made mention of my name. And most memorably, Psalm 139, 13-16. For you created my inmost being, Came to be. Today, our new baby number three is 24 years old. But is this poetry still believable when we see dozens of bodies wash ashore on the islands of Lesbos and Lampedusa? When people are starving to death in the cold rain on the outskirts of Damascus? Or when a genetic defect causes spina bifida? Those are fair questions and important questions, and no one can speak for another person's experience. But it's also a question that reveals our modern conceit and condescension, as if we're the first enlightened ones to agonize over war and starvation. And besides, how does viewing life as a biological accident give us a better perspective on Syria or the Holocaust? In fact, the pages of the Bible are soaked in blood, beginning with Cain's fratricide, and full of believers and unbelievers alike, anguishing over the gift of life with all its blessings and sorrows. For example, the psalmist for this week worships God as his rock and fortress. He praises him for his mighty acts and marvelous deeds. But he also laments the frailty of old age. He he fears being forsaken and forgotten by God. He's wary of the wickedness and cruelty of humanity. He describes himself as, quote, a portent to many, end quote. In other words, a grotesque spectacle, a sign of something ominous, a symbol of calamity. And so he says, you have made me see troubles, many and bitter. Or Jeremiah, who struggled for 40 years with a sense of failure, with violent opposition from detractors, and with deep discouragement. He was beaten, received death threats, imprisoned, thrown down a well and derided as an unpatriotic crank and traitor. The prophets, priests, and kings dismissed him as seditious. God's call on his life, he said, made his heart break and his bones tremble. When my father died in 1998, the last few days of his life he worked hard to make amends with each member of the family. Most touching of all was a phone call that he made to my mother, to whom he was married for 33 years, but then divorced from for 25 years. Most vexing of all was a sibling who would not return his calls. After he died, my father donated his body to science for medical research. And then 18 months later, FedEx delivered his cremains to our house. I remember thinking that there had to be a better way to return such a sacred gift. I opened the box, untied the twisty that secured the plastic liner, and experienced what other people had described to me. These were not fluffy ashes, but gritty shards of bone. I took a pinch of the coarse remnants of my father and rubbed them between my thumb and fingers. At his memorial service, I recalled taking comfort from a plaque that I saw every day that I went in and out of St. Joseph's Hospital in Tucson. Next to the main entrance of the hospital was a quote from Pope John Paul II. It said, Man's life comes from God. It is his gift, his image and imprint, a sharing in his breath of life. God, therefore, is the sole Lord of this life. Man cannot do with it as he wills. My wife and I have just been challenged to scribble one more new marginalia in our Bibles. Over the holidays, we learn that next summer we'll become grandparents for the first time. So we're marveling once again in the miracle of a new life, in the sacred mystery of a personal history. Grandchild number one, January 2016. For books this week, I review a memoir by Carla Power. It's called If the Oceans Were Ink, An Unlikely Friendship in a journey to the heart of the Qur'an. New York, Henry Holt, 2015. This book is 336 pages long. We hear a lot today about the clash of civilizations between the Muslim East and the Christian West. George Bush divided the world into binary opposites with his insistence that, quote, either you're for us or against us." Quote. Carla Power moves us beyond such crude stereotypes and convenient generalizations. Her book about spending a year studying the Quran with her friend, Sheikh Mohammed Akram Nadwi of Oxford, was a finalist for the 2015 National Book Award in Nonfiction. Power calls herself a skeptical feminist and a dutiful little secularist. Her Jewish father and Quaker mother were both non-practicing. Thanks to her father's peripatetic ways, she grew up in Tehran, Kabul, Delhi, and Cairo, although she's quick to admit that her knowledge of Islam was always one held at arm's length. That is, until she studied with the Oxford Imam and scholar Nadwi, a friend of 20 years. Akram Nadwi, a Sunni, defies easy labels. He was born in India and eventually made his way to Oxford. Fluent in several languages, he's published 25 books. He's also completed a biographical dictionary in 53 volumes that identifies over 8,000 women scholars of Hadith, the collection of traditions about the words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. He's complicated enough to disappoint both progressives and traditionalists. When properly read, says Nadwi, the Quran reveals a just and humane faith. And so a major theme of his life and work has been a close reading of the original sources to excavate the spiritual essence of the faith. He laments the cultural accretions that have ossified true faith, politics that supplant genuine piety, and ancient customs that have no support in the Quran. For him, Islam, with a small i, meaning submission, is more of a verb, than a noun. What matters most is taqwa, or God consciousness. We must always respect human conscience, he says. There can never be compulsion in true religion. In his view, to take just one example, what restricts women is patriarchal cultures and not the tenets of Islam. But Nagwi is hardly a liberal. He accepts polygamy and traditional domestic roles for women. He has six daughters. He believes in a literal paradise for believers and a hell for unbelievers like Power. He's opposed to homosexuality. Veiling is fine in his view, despite all sorts of cultural complexities and nuances. At times, Power's narrative borders on hagiography. She's captivated by Nodwe's combination of erudition, piety, and kindness. And in the end, she admits that theirs was, in fact, a one-way conversation rather than a dialogue. She writes, I wanted him to take a step toward my worldview, as I had done toward his. But that was never going to happen. Nonetheless, power earns high marks for being open to an other. It's a model we all do well to follow, each in our own way and in our own little world. She writes on the last page, if understanding difference is among my own key values, it is also a Quranic one. Only through diversity, says the Quran, can you truly learn the shape and heft of your own humanity and so she ends her memoir with a quotation from the Quran 49:13. O oh humankind, we created you from a male and female, and we made you races and tribes for you to get to know each other. A book review, the title If the Oceans Were Ink. A finalist for the National Book Award in 2015. For movies this week, we go to the country of Morocco. The title of the movie is Salvation Army, from 2014. This coming-of-age story is not a great movie, but it's a brave and important movie because it broaches a subject that is otherwise utterly forbidden, namely, growing up gay in a poor neighborhood in Casablanca. This screen version is an adaptation of the 2009 autobiographical novel of the same title by Abdella Taya of Casablanca. When he came out in 2007 in a country where homosexuality is illegal, Taya became the first openly gay Arab writer. Although he's published eight novels, this is his first film, and it gives the Arab world its first on-screen gay protagonist. In the movie, young Abdella must deal with his emerging adolescent desires, a violent family that includes sexual hypocrisy and predatory older men. The movie eventually fast-forwards ten years to an older Abdella, who was then in Geneva. I'd love more insights on two points. In one scene, at the beach, his brother is reading Christ Re-Crucified by Nikos Kazantakis. And at the end of the movie, in Geneva, Abdella finds refuge in a Salvation Army hostel and thus the title of the movie. I watched this movie on Amazon streaming. It's in Arab and French, with English subtitles. From the Country of Morocco, a movie, Salvation Army. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a sonnet by the famous John Milton from 1608 to 1674. The title comes from the first line of the sonnet, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent, and it's a reflection on his great gifts for writing, and yet his blindness. When I consider how my light is spent, Ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodge with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask. But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, and post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 31st, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.